We're going to continue our study in the early Middle Ages. We weren't able to finish last time, so if you have your sheet from last time, you can use that. Otherwise, we have a couple extras here. Um, Anyone need one? And uh, most of you have heard that Terry Russell Sr. passed away yesterday morning. Um, funeral will be on Friday at 11 o'clock, and uh, viewing will be on Thursday at 3 to 8. And uh, anybody know the name of the funeral home? Sawyer Fuller in Berkeley? Okay. Oh, is he? Okay. I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, Kathy Stanley was taken to the hospital yesterday, and uh, she's going to be in for a couple of days. They're trying to um, find out what's going on with her. So let's uh, pray uh, for these two situations, these two families, and then uh, also for the Spirit to help us as we think about these things. Father, we uh, are grateful that you are sovereign God, that you um, that you are in control of all things, and even in the most difficult times of life, we recognize that you do all things for our good and for your glory. And so, even in these two uh, uh, difficult situations that are connected to our church, we pray for your grace and recognize your loving sovereignty. We pray for the family of uh, Terry Russell that you would that you would be near them and also uh, the friends as well. Thankful for the testimony and their family, and we pray that you would comfort especially Betty right now and give her strength and, and grace and be able to uh, feel your hand of mercy upon her. Um, and I would pray that we could be um, vessels in that regard, that we could be vessels of mercy to help show her your love at this time, this time of, of loss. I pray that you'd be with Pastor McLaughlin as he speaks, as he um, officiates the funeral service, that you would um, give him wisdom and, and grace, and that those who are there who do not know Jesus Christ would be able to uh, have interaction with him, that they would be able to be confronted with him and their need to turn to Him from their sin. We pray that You would uh, comfort those who are there and, and provide for this family during this time of need. We pray also for uh, Kathy Stanley at this time. Thank You for her good spirit during this uh, this trial and thankful that You have provided and protected her and Mike. And we pray that You just give them wisdom as they talk with the doctors and see what is going on. And... Uh, we thank you for the time that we can spend now reflecting on history and how you have had your sovereign hand over all of it as well and how you've led uh, people of history to um, stand up for certain doctrines and clarify others. And, and now we really in many ways stand on their shoulders. And so we're thankful for that. We pray that you'd help us to interpret these things rightly as we look at them in light of your word. We pray for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're talking about the early Middle Ages, which is A.D. 400 to A.D. 1054. And um, we want to look at the two main reasons 
or the two main responses that Christianity has to the world. Do you remember what the first one was that we talked about last week? What was it? Isolation, right? We're going to remove ourselves from the world. And, and how was that expressed? In what sort of way? Right. The monks, uh, they, would, they would go out away from all of the evil in this world. We're going to pull ourselves out. Start out with really just one person doing it. And then there would be whole communities of people doing it turned into... Um, it turned into a way of life and then you have Benedict writing the rule, what's called the rule, which is how to live a monastic life and something that's still used to this day. So the first way that, that Christians dealt with the problem of evil in the world is to remove themselves completely from it, complete isolation. And uh, we talked about the problems with that. Um, obviously, there there are some benefits to it. It, it helped... It helps people spend more time focusing on the scriptures and on 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 uh, theology. It also there were many monks who were evangelists who would take the mission of Jesus Christ, the the, the message of Jesus Christ, to other people, and so more people are starting to focus on Christ. But obviously, the problems with that, as we talked about last week, is that they um, they had wrongly pulled themselves away from the world, and they started to adopt a works-based salvation as if you can only be right with God if you live like us, if you isolate yourself like us, if you completely keep yourself away from the corruption of the world. And yet, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that we should uh, keep away from immoral brothers. But when he said that, he's not talking about going away from all immoral people because then we'd have to go out of the world. And so, uh, what he was suggesting is that we need to stay away from immoral brothers, people who call themselves Christians. And um, and the third reason why there, this is a problem, this monastic lifestyle, is because um, in a folk, with a focus on spiritual things, it actually takes away from our responsibility for other things like building up other people in the faith. And perhaps they thought that sitting up on a pole and answering spiritual questions was that was the way to do that but we know from the scriptures that the uh that the commands and the patterns are to be a part of a vital lo- local church a, par- a place where God is is working so the second way that the church or christianity in in the broadest terms the second way that christianity responded to the world in order to move itself away from the corruption of the world was to try to conquer it. Okay? To conquer it. And this is what really started to take place in the um the early centuries of the of the church. And so instead of isolating themselves, they tried to conquer it. And this really showed itself in the merger of religious and secular authority. And this occurred basically in two tracks. The first is the growth of the papacy, the growth of the the um, leadership of the Pope. And then secondly is the reemergence of the Roman Empire. All right, so let's first talk about the growth of the papacy. As we've seen in previous weeks, in the early centuries, the Bishop of Rome periodically attempted to assert his authority 
over the rest of the church and many Christians and viewed the church in Rome with special reverence as if it was superior to all other churches. You had to be somehow connected to this church in order to be right with God. And so over time, what this meant was that the church of Rome started to gain more and more power. Bishop Leo I in the 5th century took um, steps to assert his authority in matters of doctrine and, and, and increase his power. And he seems to have been the first bishop of Rome to claim the title Pope, which comes from the Greek word Papa, um, which just means senior church official. And the Pope attained its greatest height in 590, between 590 and 604, which was when Gregory the Great was in power. He, he was uh, born in AD 540 to wealthy parents, Gregory the Great this is. Um, he didn't really care about theology or philosophy, but he was very good at administrative skills and um, was later appointed emperor to direct the civil affairs of Rome. And after serving in several other positions, the people elevated Gregory to the position of Pope. Now, he, he didn't want to be Pope. He tried to refuse this position. But the people appealed to the emperor and um, are, actually they tried to force him to be, become pope, but he appealed to the emperor and said, don't allow them to do this. Don't allow them to make me pope. I don't want that title. But of course, the emperor um, declined his request and, um, and he was installed as the pope. Um, as the pope, Gregory faced a... a several types of difficulties with the imperial structure of the West in disarray. He had to make sure that the people of Rome were fed and that, that um, public buildings remained in good repair. And he also had to help with the, the defense of Rome. He had to make sure that it was defended against invasions of the barbarians and others. All, all of this had to be done while he was taking care of the affairs in the church. And so he had quite a lot of things on his plate, and uh, so you can understand why he didn't want to be Pope. But uh, Gregory worked hard to to uh, accomplish all of his responsibilities, and and during his time of reign, he reformed the worship services of the church, and he also wrote extensive commentaries, and even wrote the first biography of the esteemed monk Benedict. Um, so, more than any other pope, Gregory established this papal monarchy. The, the idea that popes were the successors of the great Caesars of the early empire. Well, he, his reign, I guess you could say, as pope didn't last very long. In 604, he died. Um, but successive popes after him over the next 200 years um, would follow in his footsteps, but none would really gain the acclaim that he did. wouldn't uh, accomplish the things that he did. And um, so, during his time, one of the reasons that he stands apart from all the others is because it really shifted the streams of history, I guess you could say. Because before that time, when people would have problems, they would look to the emperor. But now, with Gregory in power, now they would look to Gregory, the, the Pope, and that would soon be the case following his, his uh, leadership as, as Pope. And so now, 
the Pope is not just a religious authority, he's actually becoming more of a secular authority, a political authority as well in in Rome. So the first uh the first way I guess we could say that the church or the second way that we're talking about where the church dealt with the world was that they tried to conquer the world and so the first thing we need to understand about that is that, that the growth of the papacy that started to grow as this um this important uh center point within this time period. But the second way in which people tried to conquer the world, they tried to conquer the world for Christ, I guess you could say, is is the reemergence of the empire. The reemergence of the empire. Besides growth of the Pope's authority, political developments in Europe saw the surfacing of new uh, powerful emperors from the Franks. In 496, um, before before the time of Gregory the Great, Clovis, who was the king of the Franks, apparently converted to the Christian faith. Now he had a very similar testimony to Constantine, who just before he got to battle, prayed a prayer, God, if you help me to win this battle, then then I will, you know, I will serve you in whatever way is possible. And similar to Constantine, he wins the battle and uh, and seeks to do things for God and seeks to follow God in some way. And so one of the ways that he thought he could serve God was to compel the Franks, who of whom he was the leader, to compel them to to turn to Christianity, to embrace Christianity. So by the end of the 7th century, Clovis, the king of the Franks, his dynasty had weakened and and a new ruler emerged. So um, Clovis was actually, supposedly came to Christ as a result of his wife who was was a professing Christian. And and, uh, and so he worked to try to to try to conquer his people, at least, or at least to to, to persuade them, to move them, to to uh, compel them to come to Christ. Which we should try to uh, compel people to come to Christ, but but uh, his was a little bit more forceful because of his position of power. By the end of the seventh century, um, a new ruler came into uh, power, and his name was Charles Martel. He gained his fame by um, by winning many battles against Muslim invaders, and uh, you remember that the the Muslims during this time were starting to gain more and more popularity and and uh, land. And uh, during this time, a monk named Boniface was commissioned by the Pope to undertake missionary work to modern day Germany. Well, Charles Martel directed uh, directly assisted him and other missionaries so that um, he could be in good standing with this pope. And uh, Boniface and his work helped unite France and Germany and England and and really the whole continent of Europe under a Christian banner. Boniface also forged a close relationship with Charles Martel's son, whose name was Pepin. And uh, Pepin would be heir to his father's throne, uh, obviously. But but for Pepin to take the crown, he he wanted to have the desire, or he wanted to have the the blessing of the religious authority during that time, the Pope. Well, the Pope, recognizing that the Bombari, uh, the barbarian Lombards were still a serious threat to Italy, agreed to have Boniface anoint Pepin, but only if the new king would in turn agree to protect them from the Lombards. 
So, King Pepin, because he wanted to be an authority and he wanted the blessing of the Pope, agreed and he, he, uh, he in fact, did try to protect them from the Lombards. And so now what you start to see is that the Pope and the Emperor are starting to become closely allied together. And uh, they also teamed up together, the, the Pope and King Pep- Pepin, against another hopeless Frankish king. His name was Childeric the Stupid. And uh, I don't know how he came about having that name, but yeah, hopefully he, did, he didn't uh, give that name to himself. But... <coughs> But uh, Childeric the Stupid was a Frankish king and he claimed the throne and, and he was actually being opposed by Pepin and, and the Pope at that time. Um, they forced Childeric to give up his crown and, and forced him to become a monk. So not all of those who were a part of monasteries were there by choice. Some of them were there by, by, um, uh, by compulsion, I guess you could say. People forced them to be monks. So that not all monks were, were there because they wanted to be closer to God. Pepin's son, Charles, uh, completed this process of allying the church with the empire. He became known as Charlemagne. He is regarded as one of the most remarkable rulers in Western history because he was a brilliant warrior. And uh, he, he also was was a student of learning and arts, and he had a rare ability to be able to defeat um, the the uh, those who attacked them and and those of whom they were attacking. And in 774, he marched into Italy and completely defeated the weakened Lombards. And so, under Charlemagne, victory followed victory until he pretty much ruled all of Europe in the eighth century. Well, at the turn of the century, on Christmas Day. A.D. 800, another historic event took place. Charlemagne attended a worship service at the main cathedral in Rome. And at the end of the service, the Pope who was uh, in power at that time, Leo III, came up to the emperor and placed a crown on his head, on Charlemagne's head. And the people in the church promptly shouted three times, To Charles Augustus, crowned by God, great and peace-giving emperor of the Romans, life and victory. And uh, although that doesn't sound like a whole lot, you've got a, you know, you got a cathedral here in, the, in Rome uh, crowning this man as king of, of the Romans or emperor of the Romans. What really took place here is, is something that's very critical to to history, and that is that the church and the state were united under one emperor who is crowned by the religious leader, the, the, the religious leader of the church who would rule all of Europe. So, what did this conquering of Europe mean for the relationship between the church and the world? Remember, the church's goal was to remove itself from the corruption of the world. So, one way is to isolate itself through monasteries. The other way is to attack all those who oppose Christianity. So what did this mean? What did this attack of the world mean? Let's begin with the positives. First, this cooperation between church and king did help to spread the gospel. Okay, More people were able to hear about the gospel, but um, as we'll see later, many of these com- conversions didn't come by choice, which can't ultimately be genuine conversions. They came by compulsion or they came by force. 
uh, you must accept Christ, uh, that sort of uh, missionary. But, but, it, but there were others who did receive Christ by choice, and so we can see a positive that the gospel is spread to, to more and more people. Also, perhaps more important for us as Americans is that the Christian worldview and its developments, the, the importance of the Scriptures, scholarship, ethics, politics, uh, those types of things that come as a result of Christianity, those started to spread more and more throughout Western civil- civilization, which resulted in coming across to us, and and um, and that would wouldn't happen till several hundred years later. But you understand that that what's happening now is the Christian worldview is starting to expand more and more, although flawed. All right. So those are the positives. The negatives. Um, the, the, the bad we could call of conquering is that, first of all, and most tragically, too many Christians came to love this fallen world. Isn't it amazing that their, their initial goal is to avoid the corruption of the world? We said, we said the same problem with, with the monasteries. In order to try to pull themselves away from the corruption of the world, they, they start their own little communities and yet they still fall into the corruption of the world, even though they're apart from it. And the same thing happens with trying to conquer the world. We're trying to to oppose the corruption of the world, and yet the very thing that they're trying to oppose is the thing that, that infiltrates their own hearts. Turn to James chapter 4, because I think we see an important principle here. James chapter 4. Someone read verse four, please. James four four. Trish, thank you. The adulterous people don't know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Okay, so no matter how much good we accomplish on the earth, we have to always remember this stern warning that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And although these people had, were well-intentioned, they wanted to avoid the corruption of the world, they actually fell into the very thing that they were trying to avoid. That's the first problem. The second problem with trying to conquer the world for Christ is that uh, similar to what we saw with Constantine, Christendom confused the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God. They confuse the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to establish God's kingdom on this earth now. When the Scriptures are clear that that God will establish His own kingdom, that God will do it through His Son, Jesus Christ, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And as we'll see as we continue our study in Revelation, that, that God is the one who establishes the kingdom. We don't have to establish God's kingdom for Him. Okay, he, he's very capable of doing it. So, anytime you have people who are in rule who are trying to conquer other people so that they can force God's kingdom to come on the earth, it becomes a problem. And as I mentioned earlier, with, in the 300s when Constantine came into rule, the, a lot of people started to see this is actually God's kingdom on the earth. See, the, the church is at peace now. We have God's kingdom here. And... Uh, Obviously, a hundred years later or so, when Rome falls, it becomes a great devastation. How could God's kingdom fall? This is God's kingdom on earth. How could it fall? And so, 
the problem here with these people who are trying to conquer the world is that they confuse the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God. And um, we have to understand that we can't create God's kingdom on the earth. This will only come after Christ's judgment and it will come uh, through God's power. So that's the second problem. The third problem with trying to conquer the world um, and that's what we're going to see. This is something we'll see in the coming weeks is that this arrangement between religious leader and political leader actually brings uh, great corruption into the church. Brings great corruption. This was one of the problems, by the way, with during the time of Constantine in the 300s. That there was so much persecution going on from the time of the New Testament all the way up till till Constantine in 8300, till the 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 Council at Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, all the way from from we could say AD 95, at the death of John, the Apostle John, all the way till 312, there was so much persecution that the church was, was reeling. It was, it was spreading out. It was trying to avoid this persecution as much as possible. And so when Constantine comes in and, and starts to show favor to the church and, and grace and, and, um, and actually opposed those who opposed the church, the church saw that as a good thing, but actually over time what happened was the church was having a close relationship with the state and as a result there was corruption that came into the church. And so while initially it looked like a good thing, it actually was not. Um, and, and that's what you're going to have every time the church and state are involved, at least until the millennial kingdom when there will be a perfect king over all the world. And... Um, and uh, of course, at that point, the church will will not exist as it does now, right? So there's corruption that comes into the church here in the early Middle Ages. Too many religious leaders were concerned about political power. They, they're more concerned about about their name and their their legacy, and as a result, it led to all sorts of uh, scandalous financial uh, problems and and also sexual sin. They forgot that the church belongs not to them, not to the government, not to the state, but to Christ. So you have uh, all these sorts of problems that are starting to infiltrate the church and actually um, harm the cause of Christ, and um, and yet God still is in control throughout this time period. All right. Next, we want to turn to the great split between East, the, the East and the West. You, you're probably familiar by now with the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Western Orthodox churches, and this is when really it, it um, solidified its split. But before we do that, do you have any questions or comments on trying to conquer the world for Christ? Yeah, Sandra. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God certainly can work through the world, but He is ultimately an enemy of it, um, and that's why 
we become an ally of the world, we actually become an enemy of God. And so we have to be careful with how we use the world, that we are in it, and we use its resources, but we're not of it. Right. Yep. All right. Anything else? Ken? Yeah, absolutely. And you've got that sharing of uh, authority. Mm-hmm. Right. Anytime there's, even if there is good intentioned uh, people in the state, um, they are not ultimately submitting themselves to the authority of the scriptures and the authority of Christ. Um, they they like to be, a, a lot of times when you see the, this relationship happen between the state and the church, the state wants to be a part of the church because they they want the political power. And you you get you uh that's why what you're going to find in the coming um debates and so on is is people talking about religion because they know if they can they can get on the same page as you with regard to your religion, then then they can win you over. And Emperors, leaders, kings have always liked to have this close relationship with the church because of what kind of power comes with it. And so there seems to be a a leniency towards, okay, you can do it how you please, but, but over time what happens is um, when when their power starts to wane, then then that changes the way that they want you to operate the church. And since you've already allied yourself with the church... You can't say at this point, well, we don't really want to do that anymore. We want to be our own entity. And yet, you know, all the time when you're able to spread and enjoy their, their benefits, um, you didn't say anything. And so we, we definitely have to be careful with that. And I think that's one of the great parts about our country is it's sought to keep that distinction because the church over the state is never a good thing. The state over the church is never a good thing. The state and the church combined is not a good thing. There needs to be a separation. Uh, Jonathan? This goes back to the original introduction of um, worldly authority over people. When God originally led Israel, He wanted Him to be their authority, and He didn't want them to choose a king. But they insisted they wanted to be like their neighbors and have a king. Mm-hmm. And that was one of their major downfalls ever since. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and and really, in that, well, that wasn't really a church state, uh, but but that was much different than what we have now. Um, they they actually had a theocratic ruler, so they had someone who was God's spokesperson as their ruler. So started out with. Moses, the 70 elders, moved on to the judges one at a time, the judges and then the kings. And they actually were God's spokesperson for them as a nation, Israel, and we could say as a people of God as well. And um, and so that sort... I mean, we are talking a little bit about different things here. We're not talking about church and state in the Old Testament. We have to understand that. But 
but there is the fact that, that there is a monarchy, not necessarily a bad thing, the fact that there's one ruler, because he's actually a, a theocracy, he is a theocratic ruler, he's a God ruling leader. And so that, that was good, but now we no longer have that. Jesus basically showed, uh, when he came to, to earth, he, he showed that that no longer is necessary, valid. The way that God is working now is, is through individual churches. So, I, but that is a good point. I mean, there, there's always been that desire to have the, the, the lure, the, the blessings that come with being under a, a kingly ruler. And uh, that was certainly uh, not the best choice for those people, although God had already planned that that would be the case. I mean, David had already been promised. uh, Abraham had been promised that there would be a king through his line. Uh, We know Jesus would would come through that line and so on. Is there someone else over here? Trish? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they've even been, uh, you know, the David said about Iraq, you know, Saddam Hussein didn't rule that, that the church, or, or not the church, but, you know, whatever his religion, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't put all these Muslims in charge there either, mm-hmm. and he still was a religious freedom, even though he was a dictator. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter how much persecution. I mean, at the time, the church is probably praying that the persecution will stop. And so when Constantine comes in and makes this pact with them, it probably looks like a good thing. But but um, as John MacArthur has said, and I've quoted before, no human government can stop the progress of the gospel. It doesn't matter how ruthless they are. Um Persecution cannot stop it. Nothing can stop. Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the local church. Or well, he said the church. So he's probably talking about the universal church at that time. But but the point is, the gates of hell can't prevail against it. So if if even Satan and his demons cannot, then then no human ruler of persecution can can either. Um. And the reversal that MacArthur goes on to say is that no um, no amount of favor within the government can help advance the gospel. Okay, so that's clearly seen in Constantine under his rule that that just because we have favor with the government doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to help advance the gospel uh, because we see examples like in China where. They have they have not received a lot of favor, and yet the church is growing there. There there's uh, lots of great progress with regard to Christ's work, and uh, even though they don't have uh, a whole lot of favor from the government. Well, let's uh, finish this uh, study here on the great split of 1054, and then I'll uh, open up for more questions. We should have some more time. Um, so this split is about to to take place. And it's because uh, of a lot of differences in the East and the West. Some of it has to do with language. Uh, we, we saw in Genesis chapter 
uh, 11 with the Tower of Babel, that there's a natural division that happens because of language. Um, but in addition to language, there's also differences in the way that the church uh, did what they thought they should be doing, different emphases that were uh, focused on in each each different area. And there's also differences in ruling structure. While both the East and the West saw close cooperation between the church and the state, in the West, the church still seemingly reigned supreme. As we saw when Charlemagne is sitting in a cathedral and the Pope comes up to him and says, I now grant you Emperor of Rome. Um, so, so in the West, it's more the church over the state. And in the East, the emperor really was over the church. They, they saw the, the church as being subservient to the, to the emperor, still connected, still closely allied, but the, the, the emperor having ultimate rule. And so there's differences in the way that they saw the, the, these things being governed. They also differed on church government issues. The church leaders in the East resented and emphatically rejected the Pope's claim to absolute supremacy. supremacy. The Eastern patriarchs were willing to call the Pope first among equals, but would go no further. And then there were theological differences, um, which became enormous, enormous, enormously important. In 589, the Western Church thought that the Holy Spirit proceeded from, they, they understood from the Scripture, that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. This was a problem because, well, this is a problem for the Eastern Church, I should say, because in the Nicene Creed, it only said, it said that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father, not the Son. And uh, it didn't say not the Son, but it, it was uh, implied that that's not from the Son, that He was not from the Son. And so they inserted this word, which you have on your sheet, uh, philoquy, which simply means and the Son. They inserted it in, into the Nicene Creed. And so this further split them, further made division between the East and the West. This was um, uh, something that, that finally um, set them apart. In fact, in 1054, this was really when all these differences reached a boiling point. At that time, Pope Leo IX sent an envoy to Constantinople to demand the submission of the Eastern Patriarch, the Eastern Church leaders. And when the Patriarch refused, the papal envoy excommunicated him. And, um, and I think across town, the same thing was happening to them. I think, in, in fact, in the same town, the Eastern churches were coming together and saying, if you don't believe the way we believe, we're going to excommunicate you. So there's kind of a mutual excommunication of each other. And this formalized what is called the Great Schism or Schism, which persists to this day of the Eastern and Western Orthodox churches. So, the 9th and 10th century saw neither strong emperors nor virtuous popes, even though the church and the state were closely allied together. Instead, they, they descended into conflict, confusion, and stagnation spiritually. And despite efforts to reform this apathy and this opposition towards God, um, they, the Christian purity was really starting to suffer during this time. And so what we learned from this time period, we said it's a large period of time, 650 years, but what we learned is that neither isolating ourselves completely from the world like the monks or conquering the world, forcing people to follow God 
is not the answer to um, to spreading the message of Jesus Christ. During this time, uh, Islam was starting to rise in its authority, its power, and challenge Christendom from the south and even its rule over Jerusalem and uh, some of the ancient lands that the Christians would would uh, would have saw as their own. And so faithful Christians needed during this time to cling to God's promises in the midst of what seemed to be growing dark, uh, dark ages. And that's why... That's why this time period is often called the Dark Ages. There's not a whole lot of uh, hope, I guess you could say, spiritually going on during this time. And yet God was using this time period to um, to unify certain people groups and to be able to, so that later on the, the Word of God would be spread to, the, to all parts of the world. And that's, in fact, what, what has happened since then. All right, so those are the early Middle Ages. The late Middle Ages, I think, cover 1054 to around uh, right before the Reformation, so in the 1400s, 1500s. So that's prob- that's what we're going to attempt to cover next time. Any questions or comments on this time period and what it means for for us? Yes, Sandra. Sometimes that's the way it happens, yeah, when people will ask questions. But other times we're, I mean, uh, we're, we're told to make disciples uh, go to all the world and, and, um, and preach the gospel. So we have a responsibility to go. It's not as if we just, uh, and I, I don't think you're suggesting that we just, uh, we be, uh, we make sure that we're holy and then just let people watch us and then they'll come to us. Uh, that does happen on occasion, but I think your main point is that we need to be separate from the world. I think there's three types of separation that we're called to in the Scriptures. One is personal separation from from godlessness. Uh, the second is separation from a sinning brother. So if a person's uh, not willing to repent, then we need to remove ourselves. We need to remove them from our midst. Second Thessalonians three, and then thirdly is separation from the world, which is seen in 1 John 2.15 where it says do not love the world or the things in the world um, because those are those are of the devil. Those types of things are of the devil. So, uh, while we live in the world, we certainly need to guard ourselves against it, but at the same time we need to um, we need to be out in the world. We need to have relationships with unbelievers like Jesus had relationship with unbelievers and uh, make sure that we're spreading the news to, to all people. Any other comments or questions, Mark? Oh yeah. 
Right. But I just wanted to express my appreciation for the new digging into the facts and presenting. Well, I'm happy to happy to do it. I'm indebted to this church here in Capitol Hill Baptist Church and. In Washington D.C., they've developed a lot of this material, and so I'm piggybacking on them, um, and then uh, falling back to a little bit of what I remember in my three church history classes. So, but uh, yeah, it's, it is it is fascinating study to try to interpret things according to what the scriptures say and see how it plays out in history. Because if we fail to learn from history, then we're likely to repeat it. I think some wise man once said, I can't remember who that was, but um, any uh, other thoughts or questions? Jared. Yeah. Sounds like a the beginning of a joke. <laughs> Yeah. Other than other than work, um, the two things that took up our conversation was politics and religion. Praise the Lord. Good. And, and we actually got home and went into the community. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Got some pretty strong-minded uh, people there. That's good. All right. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for uh, how you've orchestrated and directed the streams of history. And uh, we're thankful for our heritage as Americans, and we're thankful for how you've worked in other people's lives around the world. We recognize that we are not at the center of the world, and uh, we look forward to how you're going to bring all things to a culmination where Jesus will reign as King in Jerusalem. And so we pray that you would bring peace in Jerusalem. We recognize that that cannot come until... uh, least ultimate peace cannot come until Jesus is King, till judgment comes. And so we pray that our Lord would come quickly. Help us now as we think about His coming and even in the Lord's Supper as we reflect on His death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.